So guys, how you doing? Pretty good. Doing well. So I guess we're doing Corbamite Maneuver today. Let's just do quick overall thoughts on it. I'll, I'll go ahead and start. This is an episode I enjoy every time I see it. I think it holds up well, despite it being maybe the one of the very first ones ever produced. It really holds up pretty well. It has a lot of the character things we like in it. It's a good kind of seek out new life forms storyline. It does well for me. It, it, it's again, it's not quite mature as Star Trek. Um, you can probably you, you can find some wrinkles in it that aren't quite fully developed yet. But um, I, I enjoy it. It has has some some fun aspects of it it has uh, a certain amount of tension always fun i i enjoy this one quite a bit how about you guys i i enjoy watching this one and um i what i really like about it too is that it's it's a good pilot for star trek because it's very optimistic i mean it the ending is um the kind of twist ending that's kind of a you know, you would think would be a trademark of the Star Trek brand, and so it does a great job of establishing. Look, this we can't be afraid of things that we don't. That we can't be afraid of the unknown, and we have to take risks in order to to reach out and you know to to new life and and, um, and so that theme, you know, that, that recurs throughout Star Trek, and it's one of the great things about. The, yeah, it really embraces the expo- yeah. exploration theme of the show. It does, yeah, and the the ending of it is is optimistic and, and kind of reflects the, like the early, early optimism of the sixties in a way, you know, even though we're talking late made in the late sixties, but still it kind of has that like internationalist quality to it that I, that I really like. I, um, it feels like a very, watching it again, it felt like a very, I kept thinking this is a very naval episode, not like your, your naval, but, but yeah. as <laughs> the Navy, it feels more, um, it's a ship episode in like a very detailed way that you don't often see later. Uh, it's, there's a lot of, you know, you get a lot of perspective on what life is like on board the ship and the minor care. Like this is something I've, a trend that I've noticed in the early episodes is that before especially Nimoy and, and Shatner became the, the, the huge stars that they were uh, later, you know, you had a lot more balance in terms of treatment of minor characters and minor characters getting, uh, time and lines and that kind of thing, and that's sort of reflected in these early episodes. And it's one thing, like, one of their strengths, I think. You know, yeah, it almost feels ensemble-like. It does, yeah. It's exactly, exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah, no, it, it's and, and that that is especially having gone through the entire season recently or series recently is how, um, yeah, it it does feel a lot more balanced, and and that that's something I think you can rightly criticize the show for. Is that yeah, the move away from that. Yeah, yeah, and it becomes fairly lopsided. Even if there are legitimate reasons for it, um, you do you miss something though when when those mi- when the secondary characters don't get to do much. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. This, uh, as I understand it, this was the first episode that was produced um, after the show was picked up for production, and uh, I've always enjoyed it too. Uh, it's interesting what you were saying about the ensemble nature. Of the of, uh, of the show early on, um, I just recently rewatched all of Mash, and uh, all of them, huh? huh all twelve se- or eleven seasons. Interesting. Yeah, I, I started to do that, but only made it through season two so far. So, oh yeah, interesting. 
Well, it was a little bit ago, but um, it took a while. One of the really interesting things I found in watching it from beginning to end is that the first season especially was really an ensemble uh, show. But uh, as it went on, that, that maintained in to a fair degree in the second and even the third seasons. But even then, you begin to see it becoming the Alan Alda show. And oh, after absolutely. the third season, it's, you know, it's just... I mean, they, they still have interesting stories and, and, and good episodes, but the... He is the focus, though, definitely. Well, he, he is a focus, and um, not unlike the way, you know, Star Trek became focused on Kirk and, to a lesser degree, Spock and McCoy. But, but I, I remember thinking, uh, watching the, you know, the pilot and the, the, those first season episodes, you know, wow, this was really different in the beginning. And so it's, and, and watching original Trek uh, in the same fashion, what you were talking about, that more ensemble feel really becomes evident. And also I noticed in this that... Um, Shatner seems to have a good grasp of his character. DeForest Kelly, pretty much the same for McCoy. But Nimoy, I'm not sure, has as solid a, an understanding or handle on Spock as what um, Shatner and Kelly perhaps do on their characters. You know, I had the same uh, sense in watching this episode. And I think it's true also of... Uh, where no man has gone before. And, and the, the most obvious aspect of it for me is the way that Spock shouts on mm-hmm. the bridge. He yep. shouts his command. Sort of it's like very it's, similar, yeah. Yeah, it's like he's, um, it's one of his early, and it's obviously a choice, right? Because he does it, and then tones it down later, and, and as the, the character develops more depth. And, but it's really, yeah, he's, it's taking him some, a little bit of time to find the right balance. And, um, it's interesting that early, earlier on, Spock has that more of that martial quality to him, you know, that he's the guy who shouts, or he's the guy, he's kind of the disciplinarian, kind of the guy who yeah, gets, he gets things make done. sure yeah. things get done. And then where no man got, uh, has gone before, he's the one who tells Kirk, you know, you have to face facts here, we have to kill this guy. Yeah, and, and, so, and, the movie, and he's not dispassionate about it. No, he's actually not. I mean, he's, yeah, that's true. And so it, it really is a change in the character that you see happening Maybe because of the of of Nimoy's uh, influence, you know, his having more control over his character later on sort of leads to more of these choices about Spock being, you know, pe- you know, peace first. We have to we have to choose peace uh, as the option. Well, um, and one of the things that comes out in these are the voyages, especially the first book, is that particularly in the first season, you know, very early on. Roddenberry was the only one who rightfully, of course, knew uh, what the show was about, where it was going, and had a, had a firm grasp of all of the characters. He was the only one. So, I mean, when he was dealing with producers and writers and actors and such, he, he was necessarily calling the shots, but, I mean, even that, he was only one person in a, what was a pretty big production, so... You know, getting everybody else up to speed obviously would take time. That's right, and of course, this is uh, DeForest Kelly's first Star Trek episode. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. that's so, true. I mean, he's he's good right out out of the gate. 
it's kind of amazing how how fully realized his character seems, and and also Shatner's too. I mean, it's I think it's very impressive. They're both they're both very talented and hardworking. Yeah, all actors are really professionals. Uh, yeah. Very very professional. Yeah, and, and and probably were directed well too. I think you have to give a little credit to that. Yeah, you know, the, between right. the writing and the directing, you know, established the character as well. Who uh, who directed this one? I can't remember. I've got it up in front of me. Let me look. Joseph Sargent. Hmm. Well, I recognize the name, but I don't know that he did any others besides uh, Corbomite Maneuver. And I remember uh, in reading about this episode in particular, it, like I said, it was the first produced, <clears throat> but it wasn't the first aired. And the reason for that was that um, the uh, special effects took more time. Than... Yeah, much well, much more time. And it was a struggle, actually, to get this one completed in post-production. Um, Joseph Sargent, this was his only Star Trek gig. And <clears throat> if I remember correctly... Um, he did. He was. He was. Uh, he did a good job on it. Clearly, but yeah. uh, there were budget overruns and schedule overruns, and as a result, he didn't get asked back. Memory Alpha claims that the production staff was well satisfied with Sergeant's work and tried to bring him back to direct further episodes, but he was not available. Oh, well, maybe that. Now that it could be. I think in the early days. Um, Desilu before pre Paramount wasn't quite as hard assed about some of the overruns. Uh, um, I know that happened a lot later in the series where you know if they went over it all and spent extra money, they they did not get a return job. Uh, um, I, I I'm just going off what I remember from reading that, which is a while ago. But you know, the internet is always right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I um. The the details in this this episode, as Rob pointed out, the what things are like on the Enterprise really did make this probably the ideal choice as a pilot, or mm-hmm. as an or as at least as the first one aired. Even though, as we mentioned before, it couldn't couldn't be done because the episode wasn't ready yet. <clears throat> but if if you had to pick one, this was probably be the one I would choose to have air first. Yeah, if you could. Um, and there I were do... some subtle differences in uh, props and uh, uniforms, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, Uhura's wearing gold. Mm-hmm. And they have the high collars, not the... Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a transition still going on between the second pilot and this one. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And and really, the, one of the things that I also always appreciated about this one is that the these uh, spaceship of effects of the Viserys and all that stuff, you know, they're, they're, they're really this indistinct looking model work, you know, blobs of lights and spheres and stuff like that. Um, it's pretty smart actually, because it leaves a lot to the imagination and it's just, it shows up better when you, when you don't try and make it as detailed. Yeah. And, and it looks sufficiently alien compared to the, much more um, Earth-like looking Enterprise model. Yeah. Which itself is very, you know, U.S. Navy battleship look. <clears throat> well, you know... Think... <clears throat> Go ahead. Go ahead, the, uh That makes me think of the Doomsday Machine. Um, I was reading an interview with uh, Norman Spinrad, who wrote that episode. Mm-hmm. And uh, his original concept for the Planet Killer 
was kind of a gigantic battleship, you know, bristling with guns and heavily armored. And, of course, the budget and the the schedule did not allow for creating that grandiose model, so... They you know, made the, the windsock instead. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a windsock, dick, a windsock dipped in cement, and you know the reason is it was a windsock dipped in cement. Yeah, and unfortunately, that that that's an episode that, growing up, I I thought it looked like a giant ice cream cone or something like that. Oh yeah. Well, it, you know, <laughs> I, it, it, I I don't know what the alternative would have been. I mean, really, how do you portray that? No, they, like, they. I think they did the best they could, but it it's it clearly was at at its limits. Whereas I think the ship effect on this episode was more successful to me. I actually, I I disagree. I think the in the Doomsday Machine, the uh, that original effect actually was more. It was more eerie and actually menacing than if they'd had. Um, a conventional spaceship with all sorts of, you know, ver- what are very clearly guns and and such as that. Oh, I would agree with you on that. I, I just, I just, for me, it, it still looks a little bit. It, I don't again. I, I don't have the benefit of, of an alternative for you, but yeah, I I still like. I th- I think it's more successful in my opinion in this episode than it was for that one. Okay, and and also the um. Uh, the constellation model looked especially fakey in the original effects. Yeah, because it was basically just a plastic toy model that they burned and beat up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it looked like something I had yeah. built re- recently, and about yeah. the level of my quality. <laughs> yeah, well, it actually was one of the AMT models. Exactly. Yeah, because they couldn't afford to actually uh, damage one of the one of the actual. Models they used right. for shooting, or or, yeah. or construct another one that was that yeah, detail right, and light, right. lighted and everything else. It was very expensive, so it's totally excusable. But it it definitely takes you out of it. I, I remember even growing up thinking that. Yeah, you know, one thing that I think I remember not thinking worked very well. So we're we're looking at two perspectives. I mean, one is now, and then one is like watching it on TV the way they would have meant to be watched, um, or intended to be watched, and the. The alien uh, sculpture that they that he uses as a mm. sort of avatar, or whatever. I always thought that looked creepy, fake. fake. Well, I it didn't look creepy there, to there, me. Well, there, there's something creepy about it. The the way they first use it with the with the Vaseline affected lens and stuff like that. You think so? I th- I think that was a, a little bit more successful. Yeah, maybe I'm misremembering the way that I perceived it. Maybe I thought it was. Well, okay, okay I'll, one of the things that, that I'm going to back that up a little bit. The In the episode, it comes off as, as kind of fake because it's they make the mistake of trying to have it animate. And so it, it, it it's yeah. mouth has this mechanical, jerky motion, oh. kind of an animatronic thing going on. And that, that, I think, doesn't come off very well. But one of the things that they always used to do in the the, the credit sequence is they would put that image as a still, and if yeah. you look at it as a still image, it's actually pretty effective, I think. Yeah, that's probably true. And maybe that's what they they. But when it came time to that, they needed to animate it. Um, maybe they should have obscured it more or something, so you didn't have to see that part. It was a little distracting. It's like, oh, well, that thing looks like a little animatronic head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I okay, I get it. We have any misogyny for this one? 
Uh, overt. I mean, it was yeah. it was all male centric, so I yeah. I guess that could be considered misogynistic. But I mean, they we have Yeoman Rand delivering salad. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that scene made me a little a little bit uncomfortable. That, that, uh, that could have, have to... actually been maybe dropped. Um, I I think it was fine. You know, the 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 the, the scenes where he's having his physical that you know that that's good. It, it's introductory. It's a the, it's a chance for the characters to have have some 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 time together, just doing something routine. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's good. Maybe here's your salad, Captain. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, I, it all also contributes... a little puzzling why McCoy doesn't um, once the the red alert sounds why he doesn't stop the physical. <laughs> it's like I under, I sort of understand like oh maybe those things are happen relatively frequently and they're mostly false alarms, you know, kind of like fire drills or something like that. So McCoy's like, you know, screw it, I'm going to finish this. Well, more realistic probably would have been for him to tell the captain and then bitch about it. Yeah. I'm always interrupting my physicals, damn it. (laughs) Well, you know, like, Rob, you were talking about this being more military, more naval, like the the modern-day Navy, and if uh, the ship's surgeon didn't bother to inform the captain that there was a red alert. I mean, his ass would be grass. Right. Yeah. Um, so maybe that doesn't ring very true. I don't know. I never really thought about that, but it, hmm. yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really bug me while I'm watching it, but yeah, I can think that's a misstep. Yeah. The other thing that, that doesn't quite work for me is, what the plan was all along. Like, there's all this, all this jeopardy that the Enterprise is in, at least in, you know, it's, it's, it seems to be real jeopardy, you know, given the, what the, the stress that the Enterprise has put under and the choices that Kirk has to make. And it's never quite clear to me at the end why um, he decided, the aliens, whose name I forget, um, try, why he decided to test the Enterprise crew in this particular way. And so for me, that's always been the biggest flaw in this episode mm-hmm. is he's such a, fr- you know, he's such a friendly, like, Oh, I want, I want you to be friends with you. I want you to, sh- to show you my ship here. have some Tranya. Exactly. And yet I've, I've almost caused you to kill yourselves, you know, and I've, I've threatened you. I've put you through a lot of stress and what was the point? You know? Well, maybe it, um, <laughs> it, strangely, it reminds me of, uh, an anecdote that Gene Wilder, related about the making of Young Frankenstein. If you remember the scene where uh, they're back in New York uh, with uh, the monster and uh, they do the the nightclub uh, little cabaret act of putting on the Ritz. <laughs> and, yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I love that scene. It's, it's hilarious. But they, they interviewed Gene Wilder for the, the making of featurette uh, with regards to young Frankenstein. And he, he was talking specifically about that scene and how he, apparently he wrote it and wanted it in there. And Mel Brooks was kind of, I'm not sure. I don't think that works. I, I, I don't think we're going to put that in. So Gene Wilder becomes increasingly forceful and frantic um, defending the scene and insisting that it be in to the point where he's practically apoplectic about it. And, and, you know, uh, all of a sudden, Mel Brooks says, okay, it's in. And Gene Wilder is, you know, what the fuck? 
you know, I, I about had a stroke. What, what's the deal? And he said, well, I wanted to find out how serious you were about, about having that scene in, how, how much you believed in it, and you, know, you convinced me. So it's in. My point is that the rationale behind Velox putting the Enterprise crew through what he did would have been that, you know, if he'd had a number of unfortunate encounters with alien species before, he would be very intent on testing them and any new species that he encounters. He would be very intent on testing them thoroughly to make sure that he can trust them and that their intentions are decent and honorable. Yeah. I mean, that's a well-argued uh, defense. <laughs> it, it definitely is. Uh, it definitely is, and I, I understand that. It doesn't. It certainly didn't ruin the episode for me. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's. Uh, I, I still think it's a great episode. I mean, I, but I, I still, you know, have some hesitation about it. And perhaps part of it is that the the character is um, such a gentle seeming, you know, creature. You know, played by a child. Right. Well, literally, uh, but yeah, and it's interesting to note that uh, that child was Clint, Clint Howard, Howard, mm-hmm. Howard yeah, Howard's right? younger brother with with, with with a different voice. Yes, yeah, which is a little bit obvious, but you know, whatever. Well, and you know the the interesting thing I I find in the, all that is that uh, it doesn't take a very close watching to to see that. Uh, the actor is a child, not just because of his features, but because of the way he moves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. that, that's not uh, a, dimin- a diminutive adult that is, mm-hmm. that's a child. But again, you know, like you were saying, Rob, it doesn't ruin the episode for me. It's just... No, and it, it, it's, it's definitely compensated for the, the kind of surprise that you get you know, the, at, when they go on the ship. Yeah, and, and yeah, the whole—I mean—it's just a nice touch that the the aliens are short and they actually have to bend down <laughs> to get yeah. through, you know, and, and, and mm-hmm. crouch down to, to walk <laughs> around and stuff like that. And that's right. just—I think that's a neat touch, and it's totally worth, you know, the the clunkiness of of, of Baylock or whatever. So, what do we think about Bailey? I I find Bailey alternately annoying and amusing and good at the same time i he it, i flip on that is there some, there are some, some, some scenes i i i, I like ah oh, screw it <laughs> yeah well he's at least somewhat sympathetic don't you think oh i think he is and, and maybe it's just because some of the scenes he does are are, are kind of overdone yeah a little overbaked in the performance well and and you know the thing about that that strikes me about that character is that he's the only one of the bridge crew who reacts that way yeah, and he's he's near the top of the the pecking order on that ship, and you, you kind of wonder why. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, admittedly, you know, the idea is that this is his first deep space assignment, and blah blah blah. But uh, especially for starship duty, Starfleet. I mean, it's established very clearly that Starfleet is very very selective about who they'll allow to crew starships, and if they hadn't proven themselves through mm-hmm. training missions and what Seems have you. a little you. green and unstable for where he is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, and I I agree with all of that, but I do it the same. I think what it's a, it's not about, it's actually about 
showing us something about Kirk. And it fits in well with the theme of the episode because it's Kirk's tendency to, to hold back and say, wait a second, let's just, there's, there might be something here that um, is not as threatening as we think, or mm-hmm. things may not be as, as dire as we think they are. And it's that, that um, tendency of Kirk's and that aspect of his leadership that the way that he handles Bailey I think show, it really tells us a lot. You know, it's like he sees maybe he promoted him too soon. You know, but he sees something. Yeah, which in McCoy questions him. Yeah, which McCoy off right. and on. <laughs> and it's sort of like it's it's Kirk's kind of tolerance that that sort of reflects the values of the Federation, sort of the values of Star Trek, that I think is coming out in that. You know, it's just like he, Kirk is willing to to take risks in order to to explore you know the unknown and and so it's. It sort of fits in, and that's what, you know, it's another strength you see in the good episodes, in the strong episodes, that you see these storytelling things being done effectively, which is that the mind, the subplots are reflections of the main plot, you know? You know, and it's interesting that you mentioned that, the, the restraint that you don't in Kirk's character, because, yeah. again, fairly recently, I rewatched uh, Star Trek the Motion Picture, or Motionless Picture, as the yeah. case may be. But um, interestingly, which version? I'm curious. Uh, I believe it was the uh, the director's cut. Oh, so the one on the DVD. Yeah, and I think it's also the one on Netflix because that's where I watched it. Oh, I don't think that one's on Netflix, but I might be wrong. It wasn't before. Okay. But uh, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. In any case, um, uh, while the the screenplay, uh, the script for Corbomite Maneuver wasn't technically it wasn't written by Roddenberry it was heavily rewritten by Roddenberry oh yes and um the same is true of the Star Trek the motion picture script and one thing that i notice and it's what you you talked about Kurt showing restraint rob is that 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 character quality comes through um all through well maybe not so much in the third season but in the original series, and in the motion picture, because there's a scene in there where um, they're first encountering V'ger, and Decker wants to, you know, start scanning it, and uh, and all this, and Kirk says, uh, no, let's uh, hold back a little bit, let's not do that, might be interpreted wrong, and I, I well, one, I find it interesting that, you know, you see, you see that trait in the first production episode of the original series and in Star Trek, the motion picture. And I can't help but think that um, that's coming from Roddenberry rather than uh, maybe to some degree from Shatner. But well, uh, well, I think Roddenberry did like to return to the well yeah. in his writing yeah. fairly often. So that, that to me sounds right. But it was just an interesting, you know, how that character trait kind of r- runs I mean, it is consistent throughout uh, uh, throughout not only the the original series, but in even into the movies. Any other thoughts on this one before we move on? No, there's just a few. There's a few things about the minor characters that you sort of wonder why they 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 never. So Sulu, like you can see them experimenting with different aspects of Sulu's character. Mm-hmm. Um, in this episode, he. He's very he's very into the his big thing is the chronometer. Like he's really into this is how much exactly how much time we have left, and he, they even make fun of him for it. 
Um, sort His of annoying really fascination big. for timepieces. Yeah, exactly. That's what Scotty says. But that's not... We don't really see that in other episodes. And in fact, in um, The Enemy Within, he's this kind of jokester who's constantly wisecracking. Um, and so it's like they can't quite figure out what to do with Sulu. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Very, very true. I mean, it's fun to see more Sulu. Yeah. But you, you, still, you still wish that his... He'd had more of a character. Definitely. You know, you know, I had a thought, and it, it's partly due to the fact that, you know, a few years ago, George Takei came out of the closet. But despite the fact that it never would have flown in the 60s, probably yeah. not even in the 80s, but wouldn't it have been interesting if they had made Silu gay? Of course it would, yeah. That would have been... It's it's incredibly hard to imagine in context, though. Oh no, no, and <laughs> yeah. I, 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 there's no way it would have happened. But uh, you know, I, I was just thinking about you know in relation to not having a, a strong sense of his character. Uh, I don't know. No, it's, it's interesting to think about, though. It yeah. is. You know, I was just trying to. That just made me wonder what the first gay sort of major character in a. American TV series was, and I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, that it was Soap, with Billy Crystal's character, and that would have been 1977. Oh. Is that right? Yeah. I didn't, I don't know. It could be. I, I can't think of an earlier one that was, at least, I mean, th- there have been veiled, thinly veiled gay characters in movies for a long time. Yeah, right. Um, right. Those buddies with uh, Tom Hanks wasn't, but that was 80s. early 80s, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And you, you, it, unsurprisingly, comedy is where you would see it first. Yeah, first on television. You know, te- television in in those days was a very conservative outfit. Well, and you know, perhaps the, soap was a satire, yep. comedy satire. Yeah, and maybe they got away with that because people are, or at least the common perception is probably chiefly among studio execs, is that people don't take comedy seriously. Oh, yeah, you can get by with a lot more in that, especially something that's lampooning soap operas. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that, that's, I mean if they can't do it, who can? Yeah. Really? <laughs> it, now, who, who knows? Maybe a daytime soap had gay characters before anybody else. I don't know. Probably not openly, though. Yeah. It, it's probably like, you know, old movies, there's gay characters in there all the time, but... <laughs> Look at most of Ed, Edward Everett Horton's characters throughout in the 30s and 40s. Oh, he, he, yeah, he is, sure. but they're they're yeah. not identified that way. They're just played. They're and played. I, it, it's this yeah. kind of you know, open secret. <laughs> it's sort of a minstrelsy, isn't it? It's like, um, yeah. and they're yeah. ne- they're never main dramatic characters. No, right, never. It's for entertainment value. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They're 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 just uh, character actors and things to. Liven it up, even though everybody you know who pays attention knows what they are. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. And, and and as far as I know, I cannot identify a single gay Star Trek character. I read somewhere that in Enterprise, uh, the uh, security officer—I believe it was Reed, Malcolm Reed—was supposed to be gay, but that was never developed. No, definitely not. I'd also read somewhere that Rolaren. Uh, was supposed to be a gay character, and then they backed off. So that. that that would have been interesting. Yeah, 
having. That's what I originally. I I remember reading something about that a long time ago. I I could see where maybe they thought about that. Well, you know, but the problem with that would have been that uh, the gay community, with some justification, I think, could have taken issue with their their first and you know ostensibly token gay character is also a traitor. That would be uh, or at the very, very least a rebel, or, you know, outside. Yeah. Of, yeah, yeah. Well, no, she. I mean, she was. She acted treasonously with regards to Starfleet and Picard. Mm. I forgot about that. Yep. I have to rewatch some of those episodes. Yeah. Though so it is, it is interesting that the the actress event, you know, event ultimately played Commander Kane in the mm-hmm. Battlestar Galactica. Re- Admiral. Admiral Kane, sorry. And she was You're, a, you're thinking of uh, Lloyd Bridges. I mean, Lloyd Bridges. <laughs> Talk about different... <laughs> with, his, with, with his baton, yeah. Oh, yeah, the Kane mutiny. Yeah. Um, uh, no, but she, but she, that character is a lesbian. Oh, yeah, re- absolutely. Um, so that's interesting. So everything on Ron Moore's shows has to be edgy. Yes. <laughs> so have you just, just... Well, anyway, we should finish our discussion of this episode. So yes. first, but it sounds like we're pretty much. Yeah, I, I mean, if you guys don't have anything else, uh, it's a good one. Yeah, 